0: Nearly every year here at Cross Connection Church, I begin the year by reminding you about our vision. If you have been with us over the years, you've definitely heard it, but even if you're relatively new to the church, we talk often about our mission, which is life in connection with God, one another, and the world through Jesus. When I share this with you, I always talk about how God at the very beginning, as it is described in the opening chapters of the Bible in Genesis chapter one and two, God made us to live life in connection. He created you and he created me for connection with him and connection with one another. But of course, that connection was disrupted. It was destroyed by the fall that is described in Genesis chapter three. That brought about the loss of connection just as God had told Adam and Eve would happen if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And when they ate of it in Genesis chapter three, they didn't immediately just fall over dead, but there was a death, there was a spiritual death, a separation between they and God and a separation between one another as well. So what that means is that each of us is born separated from God and one another after the fall that happened in Genesis chapter 3. This is really why every single person, whether they understand the theology of the fall or not, every single person has an intuitive sense that the world is not as it should be. We all feel as though things could be or should be better, or maybe even they would be better if so-and-so would do this or that group would do that, then we think that things would be better. Paul describes this condition, this situation in his New Testament letter to the church at Rome. In Romans chapter 5 verse 12 he says, therefore just as through one man, Adam in the book of Genesis, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Through Adam and Eve, the first two humans that are named in the scriptures, sin entered into the world and that sin has brought about all of the brokenness, all of the suffering, all of the death that we are each acutely aware of. The age-old question, why is there evil and suffering in the world? A lot of people wrestle with that. I've had a lot of conversations over the years with people wrestling with that question. And from a theological standpoint, I believe that the answer is relatively simple. The answer is that sin has brought about evil and suffering and death in the world, whether it is malevolent evil at the hands of other people who have malevolent motivations, or if it's just the natural evil of, you know, storms and fires and floods and all these sort of things. These are all the result of a world that is under the curse and brokenness of sin. So that's the world that we live in. And we all are very, very aware of it. But this is not the world as God, I believe, intended it to be, and not really as, as God desires it to be. You may remember, if you followed along with my message last week, that in the closing of the creation account, in the opening chapter of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, we read these words, then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. God's master plan is not a world that is devastated by sin, suffering, and death. Actually, just as God's initial good creation had a garden with a tree of life in the midst of it, as you find in Genesis chapter 2, I believe right around verse 9. God's ultimate master plan involves a restored garden with the tree of life in the middle of it. The first two chapters of the Bible, they look back to A beautiful, good creation. God saw all that He had made, and indeed it was very good. So, the first two chapters, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, they look back to a beautiful, good creation with a glorious garden in which God and men are joined together in connection. And then the last two chapters of the Bible, we find them in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, they look forward to a similar image, a similar picture. In fact, Follow along as I read in Revelation chapter twenty-one, uh, second to last chapter of the Bible, at verse one, we read this. Now John, the Apostle John, he saw a vision of a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. And then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. God is connected to humanity again. The tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death, no more sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. And then he who sat on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write for these words, are faithful and true and then you just skip one page to the right again to the very last chapter of the bible revelation chapter 22 verses 1 through 5 there john says and he showed me a pure river of water of life clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of god and of the lamb and in the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life just like we find in genesis chapter 2 verse 9 there was the tree of life which bore 12 fruits each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. The curse that was brought about because of sin in Genesis chapter 3, it is completely done away with. Or you could use that cliche phrase, The, the curse is reversed here in this passage. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, in this city of God, this restored, renewed, new heaven, new earth and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no more night there. They need no lamp nor light from the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So these are the last images that John the Apostle has as a vision of the future. So Genesis chapter 1 gives us a vision of how things were at the very beginning, going back to the very beginning in a garden and the tree of life there and connection between God and man completely. And that's destroyed in Genesis chapter three through the fall. And man is expelled from the garden and doesn't have access to this tree of life. But then looking forward to the very last words of the Bible is this vision of the future where man and God are joined together once again in a new heaven and a new earth in this beautiful renewed garden and there is the tree of life and there is no more curse and there is no more sin and there is no more suffering. These are the images that we are given at the opening and closing of God's story. This is the beginning and this is the end. This is the alpha, this is the omega, if you will. And it really is a beautiful image, but that's not the world that we currently know. That's not the world that we live in. So the question is, how do we get from Genesis three in the past where the fall happened to Genesis chapter 21 and 22, where we see this restored creation and access to the tree of life and connection with God and one another. And this really leads to what is sometimes referred to as the overarching story of the Bible, or sometimes people will call it the meta-narrative of the Bible. The overarching story or meta-narrative of the Bible, it has four acts. And in what I just shared in Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, we have three of the four acts. We have seen already the first act in Genesis 1 and 2, and that is the act of creation. And then we see the second act in God's meta narrative, and that is the act of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And then in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, we see the final act, the fourth act, if you will, and that is the, the act of the restoration. So you have creation and you fall, you have fall, and then you ultimately have restoration. But there is another act, the third act, which is really what takes up the whole of the Bible from Genesis chapter three until Revelation chapter 20. We are in right now the third act of God's story, and that is the act of redemption. So the meta narrative of the Bible, the four acts are creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So how do we get from the fall in Genesis chapter 3, the second act, to the restoration that I think every single person would love to have? How do we get from Genesis chapter 3 in the fall to the restoration in Revelation chapter 21 and 22? And that's the whole story of the Bible. That's the story that actually involves you and involves me. We're in the middle of this story. We come into the story in this place of living under the fall and living under the curse of sin and the death that comes by sin. And we see it all around us, whether it manifests in, you know, fires or tornadoes, or it manifests in earthquakes and tsunamis, or it manifests in, you know, COVID or in all kinds of malevolent things that people do through war and murder and all kinds of these different things. We see the brokenness of the world around us constantly. It affects us, all of us. Humanity, all of us are separated from God and we are separated from one another by the sin that came about in Genesis chapter 3. But God, at the time of the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, he gave a prophetic promise. As he spoke the curse over the serpent, if you've never read Genesis 3, maybe do it a little bit later and you're going to see that there is this very interesting story about Adam and Eve and a serpent who deceives Eve and they partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which God in Genesis chapter 2 had told them not to eat of and then they eat of it and now their eyes are opened and they realize their vulnerability and their nakedness and then after all that happens God comes and he speaks into that situation. And at a certain point, it is identified that the serpent was the one who led to all this. He deceived Eve. And so God speaks to the serpent, a curse in this passage. And we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this deceived humanity, you are cursed more than all of the beasts, all the cattle, more than all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And then this, verse 15, this is the key, the important passage here. God says, and I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your seed, your offspring, serpent, and her seed, her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. This passage is called by scholars and theologians, has been for a very long time. It's called the Proto-Evangelium kind of a big word, and that big word simply means the first gospel. This is really the first allusion, many people believe, to God's plan for redemption and restoration in the scriptures by the deceptive work of the serpent, which is associated with the enemy, God's adversary, Satan, by the deceptive work of the serpent. Sin was brought into the world, and as a result of sin, we have separation and suffering and death through sin that is spread to all humanity. But God says, I am going to bring about a resolution of this. I'm going to crush the serpent, the head of the serpent, which is a death blow. And I'm going to crush not only the head of the serpent, but the work of the serpent, sin and suffering and death. And that's that's effectively what Genesis chapter three, verse 15, the Proto-Evangelium, that's what it is. It's the first declaration of what God plans to do to bring about restoration, redemption, how he's going to bring it about. He gives this first little peek into it at the very opening of this dilemma, this problem. And that starts the beginning of this third act, creation, fall, the act of redemption. And when you get right down to it, all of the rest of the biblical narrative is the story about how God is going to bring about this greatest rescue mission ever. God promised in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, the coming of the one, we shall say, the one that would be born of a woman. And this one would be a man, because God says there in Genesis three, verse 15, and he shall bruise your head or crush your head, the head of the serpent. And so this descendant of Eve, this one that comes from the seed of a woman, a man, he is going to come and he's going to crush the serpent and all of the works of the serpent, the adversary, the devil. But what does that have to do with connection or life in connection with the world? Don't worry, I I will get there. I'm I'm kind of trying to move in that direction. I don't have time enough today to go deep into the whole storyline of God's redemptive act throughout the entire book of the Bible or all the books of the Bible so I'm basically just going to run through and summarize pretty quickly what goes on here as we follow the story Genesis chapter 4 right after the fall in Genesis chapter 3 Genesis chapter 4 tells us that Adam and Eve they had children of course they did and they they had lots of children or else we wouldn't be here and so they, they have children and we're given only the names of three of their children, their offspring, even though they had many children, we would assume from what we find in the scriptures. And so we're only given the three of the names because they're kind of keys to the story as we go through this whole redemptive story. Remember, the story only focuses on what it is that God is trying to bring about. So they had their first son in Genesis chapter four, whom they named Cain. Maybe you remember hearing that name if you were connected to a church when you were growing up. Because Cain then had a brother whose name was Abel. We'll get to him in just a moment. But when Cain was born, Eve may have thought that this is the one. This is the one that God promised in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. Because God had said that she's going to have a child who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so she may have thought, this is the one I have obtained from the Lord a man. That's exactly what she says in Genesis chapter 4. That was a pretty hopeful declaration, maybe a little bit premature when she said, this is the one, Cain's the one. Because as you see, when you go through Genesis chapter 4, Cain ended up not being such a good guy. He had some issues. So then Adam and Eve, they had Cain and then they had Abel. And in the process of time, there was conflict between Cain and Abel and Cain killed his brother Abel. So Cain clearly was not the one he, he kind of manifests the fallenness of this world through murder. So he's not the one that Eve was looking forward to. And so now Cain is kind of set aside and Abel is gone. He's dead. Again, as you follow the story of Genesis, you see that Adam and Eve, they had another son and they named him Seth. And the biblical story, it begins to zero in on Seth. Why doesn't the Bible talk about Adam and Eve's other children? Why doesn't it talk about the other people that would have come about or who Cain married. Why doesn't it talk about that? Because that's not the storyline. You need to understand that God has a very specific purpose that he's trying to accomplish in revealing all of this to us through the pages of scripture. And so it only focuses in on the key players, if you will. And Seth, this third named child of Adam and Eve, he becomes the focal point. And not just Seth, but really the line of Seth. Because Seth has kids who have kids who have kids. And everything just kind of continues down. In fact, if you read through Genesis chapter 5, I believe it is, you see this long genealogy from Seth going on down to Noah, and then you follow from Noah's line down through his son Shem, and you just keep following these different people until you get to Genesis chapter 11, where we are introduced to one of Seth's great, 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 great grandkids, a man whose name is Abram. And in Genesis chapter 12, the Lord God speaks to Seth's descendant, Abram. And he says this in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God says to Abraham, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I'll make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you. And in you, all of the families shall be blessed. What we find here is what theologians refer to as the Abrahamic covenant, the promise of the one in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, that would come and destroy the work of the serpent and just destroy the serpent, the devil. The promise of the one in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, now zeroes in on Abram in Genesis chapter 12. And not just Abram, but Abram's family. And Abram followed God by faith. He is the first follower of God by faith. And His faith is important because Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 says, Abram believed God and God accounted it to him for righteousness. So he is the first follower of God by faith. And as Abram follows God by faith, God makes good on his promise to make Abram's name great and to make him a blessing and to make him a great father of many nations. In fact, God later on changes Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of many nations and what's amazing is that we have this many thousands of year old document this story that we find in Genesis chapter 12 where God says to this man Abram that I'm going to make your name great and from you there's going to come many many descendants fast forward thousands of years Abram or Abraham may be one of the most well-known characters in all of the world aside from say Jesus because Abram He really becomes the father of the three monotheistic religions in the world. So in reality, probably more than half of the people that are alive today, they look back to Abraham as being a very important part of their faith and a part of their their people, their nation. So when God said, I'm going to make your name great, that actually has come to pass. So if you question whether or not there are actual fulfilled prophecies in the Bible, there's a key one for you in Genesis chapter 3. Pretty simple. God said, Abram, I'm going to make your name great, and you're going to become a blessing, and there are going to be many people who descend from you. And the three monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, they all look back to Abram or to Abraham as their father. So, he becomes the father of many nations. But really, the scriptures say he's the father of the faith of all of those who believe. So, Abram is called by God in Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three. And Abram follows God by faith. And God makes good on his promise that started back in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. And Abram has a son by miraculous means. God brings about that. He has a son in his old age when his wife is very old, having been through her entire life, barren to that point. So Abraham has a son and they name him Isaac. And then God's promise is, is passed from Abraham to Isaac. It's reaffirmed to Isaac. And then Isaac, he has a son. He actually had two sons, but one of them was named Jacob. And God's promise continues through Jacob. And then God changes Jacob's name to Israel. Where did we get this name Israel? Well, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And Israel, Jacob, has 12 sons. And those 12 sons become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And God chose one of those 12 sons, to continue his promise, the one that he made in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, the promise of the one who will come and destroy the work of the devil, the one who will come and bring restoration and redemption. So God chooses to continue his promise through one of Israel's sons, a son named Judah. And you follow this story down through Israel's descendants as eventually at the end of Genesis, they end up in Egypt. And then you go on into the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, and you follow the story of Israel's descendants as they are in Egypt. And then we come to a man named Moses. And God, through his power, brings the children of Israel out of their bondage. He redeems them. The story of redemption its like a foreshadowing of what God's going to do in the future. He redeems his people by the hand of Moses out of Egypt. That's the second book of the Bible. And then you follow the story of Israel's descendants as they... They enter into a covenant relationship with God and they establish a tabernacle where God is going to meet with his people. And now there is, there's a connection, a restored connection between man and God through the sacrificial system and through the tabernacle. But it's not, it's not a perfect connection, but there's the beginning of this con- connection. That's the story of the third book of the Bible in the book of Leviticus. And then you follow the story of Israel's descendants as they They wander in the wilderness and they they drift away from God and God brings them back and they drift away from God and God brings them back. That's the story of the book of Numbers, the fourth book of the Bible. And then you follow the story again. And this is actually where we were as a church a couple of years ago when this whole COVID mess started. We were studying in the fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy, and that was Moses, the leader who God had used to redeem Israel out of Egypt and led them through their wilderness wanderings and helped them begin their connection with God through the sacrifices and the tabernacle. He gives one last message to them in the book of Deuteronomy, which we're going to come back to the book of Deuteronomy. For those of you who've been waiting for a while, we're coming back to the book of Deuteronomy very quickly here at Cross Connection Church. But the book of Deuteronomy, that's the fifth book of the Bible. And that leads into the sixth book of the bible where Moses dies and God brings a leader named Joshua, who is going to bring Israel's descendants into the promised land because part of God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 and again in Genesis chapter 15 was, I'm going to give you this land, the land of Canaan. It will be the land for your people, the land of Israel, the promised land. So Joshua brings the children of Israel in the sixth book of the Bible into the promised land. And this may all seem like a a long, meandering story, but there is a point to it because this is all the setup for God's rescue, rescue mission. The whole of the Bible is a continuous, Interconnected story, all moving with the same theme and focusing through to this event where God is going to, in the third act, bring about redemption so that the fourth act of restoration can come. This whole overarching meta narrative from creation to fall to redemption to restoration, it is this huge story that is contained in the 66 books of Scripture. And the 66 books of Scripture, they are a continuous interconnected story all with that same theme and what is absolutely amazing at least to me and maybe it's not amazing to you because you haven't heard this before but what is amazing is that this this book this continuous interconnected story about the creation the fall the redemption and the restoration it was written by 40 different human authors over a 1500 year period on three different continents in three different languages in 66 different books from Genesis to Revelation, and yet it is all one continuous interconnected story about what God is doing to bring about redemption and restoration after the fall. How does that work, that you can have 66 books written by 40 different authors in three different languages on three different continents over 1,500 years, and it all has a cohesive, interconnected, continuous story? How does that happen? Well, I would suggest to you that the only way that that happens is that this is divinely inspired. It is, as Second Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 says, it is God-breathed and useful. But in Genesis chapter 3, God promised that there would be a man. And if I were writing it out, I would put a capital M. A man who would come to destroy the serpent and the works of the serpent, his deceptive sinful works that brought suffering and death and brokenness to this world. So God selected an individual, a man named Abram or Abraham and his family through which that one that was promised in Genesis chapter three, verse 15 would come. And that one would come to deliver us. And the whole story of the Old Testament is the setup of that one individual's arrival, the coming of the man of Genesis chapter three, verse 15. And when you come to the New Testament. After the first, you know, books of the Old Testament, the first 39 books, you come to Malachi, and there's a a period of time where God appears to be just silent, but then you have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what happens when we come into the Gospels? Matthew chapter 1 tells us of the arrival of a man. His name is Jesus, and the angel announces his coming and says to his mother, you shall call him Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. So the man arrives, Jesus of Nazareth, and we're told in Matthew chapter 1, his lineage, we're giving his, given his genealogy, and you can trace the lineage of Jesus of Nazareth, the one who would come to save his people from their sins. You can trace it all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, down through Judah's one of his greatest descendants, King David. You can follow the line of Jesus all the way back. and in, in Luke's gospel, you can see the genealogy of Jesus, not just going back to Abraham, but going all the way back to Adam, to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And so Jesus appears on the scene in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when he appears on the scene, what does he say about his purpose for coming? Because Matthew chapter 1, I believe it is, says... His name shall be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. But what is this Jesus of Nazareth, who's a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David? What has he come to do? Well, he tells us exactly what he has come to do in his purpose statements. You know, just like any big organization or church or business has kind of like a purpose statement. You know, why do we exist? Why did Jesus come on the scene? Well, he tells us explicitly in the Gospels why he came. For instance, he says this in John chapter 10, the thief has come for nothing more than to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The thief is connected to the devil, the serpent. He has come for nothing more than to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But look at this. I have come, purpose statement of Jesus. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. A couple chapters later in John's gospel, chapter 12, Jesus gives another purpose statement. There's a whole bunch of these. I'm only going to go through about four of them. But in John chapter 12, verse 46, Jesus says explicitly there, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. You and I, because of sin, we're born in darkness. We are born in trespasses and sins, dead in trespasses and sins, in darkness. But Jesus has come as a light to the world that whoever believes in him should not abide in darkness. And then not in the Gospel of John, but in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus gives one of his purpose statements in Mark chapter 10. Why did Jesus come to the world? What was the purpose of his coming? Well, the whole cohesive, continuous, interconnected story of the scriptures is focusing on redemption, that there's going to come one, Genesis 3 verse 15, who's going to redeem those who have fallen under the curse of sin. So Mark chapter 10 verse 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man, that title there, Son of Man, is applied to him. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus came to the world to be a light to those who are in darkness. He came to the world to give life and life more abundantly. He came to the world for the purpose of being a ransom to buy us back from the bondage of sin and death. Then one more, Luke chapter 19, Verse 10, Gospel of Luke chapter 19, Jesus says, for the Son of Man, there's that title again, applied to Jesus. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So why did Jesus come? Well, he, come, he came to be the fulfillment of that redemption promise in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. This is the third act, the story of redemption. The meta-narrative of the Bible is creation, fall, redemption, and ultimately restoration. And Jesus at his first coming came to accomplish redemption. He's going to come again. He promised that after he died on the cross and rose from the dead, he promised he would come again. And when he comes again, he will bring about the restoration. But in his first coming, he came to fulfill the story of redemption, to fulfill the promise of Genesis chapter three, verse 15. He came to give life and that more abundantly. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to give his life a ransom for many. And he came to be a light to those who are in darkness. That is the story of redemption. We were dead in trespasses and sins because of the fall described in Genesis chapter 3. But God, who is rich in love and mercy and grace, he set out on a rescue mission to redeem us. Just like God sent Moses into Egypt in the book of Exodus to redeem his people out of bondage and death in Egypt, Jesus comes on a rescue mission to redeem us. He came to seek and to save that which was lost and all of us were lost and blind and he came to find us. He came to give his life for us as a payment for our sins. He came to destroy the work of the thief and to give us life in that more abundantly. This is the beautiful story of redemption. So how do we get from Genesis chapter three to Revelation chapter 21 and 22? That's the question I asked several minutes ago. How do we get from the fall and the curse to the restoration where we have access to the tree of life and we are joined in connection with God and one another perfectly once again. This story really answers that question. Jesus came in fulfillment of hundreds of prophecies written about him in the Old Testament scriptures and he gave his life as a ransom for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. He died for our sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, he died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day for our justification to save us, to pay the payment for our sin. And then after his resurrection, he gathers his followers together. And this is prior to his ascension because Jesus rose from the dead, which we will celebrate in a few months on Easter. And then he ascended into heaven 40 days after his resurrection and what we celebrate is as the ascension of christ and then after that comes pentecost and the outpouring of the holy spirit but after his resurrection jesus gathers his followers together and he speaks to them after he has fulfilled the work for redemption and he says this to his followers in mark 16 verse 15 he said to them go into all the world and preach the gospel that word gospel there means good news go into all the world and proclaim and preach the good news to every creature what is the good news The good news is that through sin and the fall and Genesis chapter three, all of creation and humanity as a part of creation, all of creation is devastated by the curse of sin, the stain of sin. But Jesus came to redeem and he comes to ultimately restore. And so Jesus says to his disciples before he ascends into heaven, go into all the world and proclaim this good news to every creature. Everybody needs to hear about this. In Matthew chapter 28, we have another one of his commissioning statements, what we call the great commission. In Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus says to his followers, go therefore and make disciples, other followers, of all nations, not just people in and around Israel, where which is where Jesus was when he spoke these things, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And then... In Luke's gospel. So we have Mark 16, 15. We have Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. We have Luke chapter 24, verses 46 through 47. Then Jesus said to them, his disciples, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. This was essential. It was essential for the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and the redemption story. He had to die on the cross. It was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And, verse 47, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So we have here three commissions of Jesus. Mark sixteen fifteen, Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Luke 24, verses 46 through 47. Then we have another one in John's gospel, chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said to his disciples again, peace to you as the father has sent me, so I also send you. You see, after Jesus accomplishes his work, In the redemption story, he calls you and he calls me as we have trusted in him, as we've been rescued by him and redeemed by him. He sends us out, commissions us to go into the world to carry this good news to others. These are the commissions of Jesus. Jesus came to the world on a mission. And at the fulfillment of that mission, his initial mission, he commissions you, he commissions me as his followers. He commissions us to a mission as well. And if you have received salvation, the salvation that Jesus gives, and you have been reconciled to God and one another in Christ Jesus by his forgiving grace, then you are now called to this mission. And just before Jesus' ascension into heaven, after giving these commissions to his disciples, He spoke to his disciples one last time just before he ascends into heaven in Acts chapter one, verse eight. And he says, but you, my followers shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses of me or to me in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The story of the book of Acts in the New Testament. So the New Testament starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John and then Acts. The story of the book of Acts in the New Testament is the early history of Jesus's first followers fulfilling his mission as he enables them by his Holy Spirit, as he empowers them by his Holy Spirit. And if you read the very last words of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 28, you're gonna find that acts, the book of Acts kind of ends in a weird way. It doesn't have like a, a clear the end sort of thing. And the reason that the book of Acts, I think the reason the book of Acts does not have kind of like this clear ending is because the story of the book of Acts, which is the acts of God by his spirit working through Jesus's followers to carry this message into the world That story continues. It's not over. All the way down to this moment on this day and the end of January 2022, we are still a part of the story of the book of Acts. You are a part of God's story. You have a part to play in God's story. God has called you to join him on his mission. And and what is the role that God desires you and me to play in this redemption story? We're still in the third act. We're looking forward to the second coming of Jesus where he will fulfill the restoration act. And I look forward to that. I look forward to a world where there will be no more sin and no more suffering and no more tears and no more sorrow. I don't know anybody that would not desire that, even if they have yet to put their faith in God or they believe the Bible yet. Everybody would desire the restoration. But right now, we're in the redemption. So, what part do we play in this whole situation? Well, I think. Part of the answer to that question is found in another New Testament book, the book of 2 Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All the old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Jesus restores us to connection with God and to one another. He has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he God the Father made him, Jesus the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You are a part of God's story. If you have been saved by Christ, you have been reconciled to God and to one another through him. You have life in connection with God and one another through Jesus. Then now, after you have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, you have life in connection with him and one another. Now you are an ambassador of God's kingdom. And he has given you the message of reconciliation. What does an ambassador do? Years ago here in San Diego, uh, many years ago now, we had a, a Billy Graham crusade before Billy Graham passed on, went to be with the Lord. And I was selected by the church. I think this was about the year 2000, somewhere around there. I was selected by the church to be like the the main person from our church to be involved with the Billy Graham crusade and kind of help people get involved with this. And so I went down to this big meeting. It was at what, what once upon a time was Qualcomm stadium. It's no longer there now. And I went down there and we had this big lunch meeting. And one of the people who had been with Billy Graham for many years for like five decades, um, and I, his name escapes me now, but some of you would know his name if I said it, but he got up and he shared about how, um, He and Billy Graham were in China decades ago, and they had dinner with an American ambassador who was in China, and Billy Graham asked him, asked this ambassador, what exactly is the job of an ambassador? And I'll never forget the answer to this question because it stuck with me because of this passage that you and I are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. And he said that he was there in China as an ambassador of America to make friends and share with them the message of America, to share with them basically like the good news, if you will, of America. In a nation that does not follow the political sort of mindset or economic mindset as America, as an ambassador of the US, he was there to make friends with Chinese people and to share with them the message, the good news, the gospel, if you will, of America. So what is your job as an ambassador? Your job as an ambassador of the kingdom of God is to make friends with people in your workplace on your school campus in your neighborhood make friends with people and to share with them the message of reconciliation you are an ambassador on your school campus in your office building on the construction site you work on in your neighborhood maybe within the family that you're a part of among your friends you have been given life through jesus you have been reconciled to god reconnected to him and to one another, reconnected to one another. And now you and I are on a mission and our mission is to go and make friends and share with them the good news of reconciliation, of forgiveness and grace and mercy and peace to any and to all that we come in contact with. I want you to understand if you have trusted in Christ, God has called you. He has not only called Pastor Miles or Pastor Mark or Pastor Jason or whoever other pastors you see out and about, he is not only called ministers, he's called you. And he fills you with his spirit and he empowers you and he connects you with a lot of people that you are connected with at work, at school, on a construction site, in the gym that you go to. He has connected you with people that I may never connect with. He has connected you with those people so that you can connect them with the good news, share the good news of his grace with them. So here's the question as we kind of begin to close out this series, Life in Connection series here at Cross Connection Church. Here's a question or questions for you. How are you doing in this work as an ambassador? Are you doing the work of an ambassador? What possibly could you do to do that work better or to do that work more? You see, there will come a day when I will give an account to God for how I have used my time, my talents, my money, all these different things, how I've used my energy. I will give an account for how I've used those things for his kingdom because ultimately those things are his things that he has loaned to me. So how are you reaching people? Are you reaching people? Some of the ways that you are reaching people right now are just the ways that you interact with them, but can you share with them the good news of jesus christ how how can you do that well one of the ways that you can do that is to recognize that you are on this mission first and that you can share with them the good news and invite them to come to church or to pray for them or all those sorts of things but but i also want to share with you some of the ways that you right now just because you're a part of cross connection church if you are a part of cross connection church some of the ways that you are fulfilling this mission right now in the world And this church, as you pray for this church, as you support this church, as you are part of this body, you are supporting the work of us connecting the world with Christ, because we have missionaries in China and the Philippines, Central and South America. We have missionaries in Africa and Israel that we support, Nepal, Indonesia, Burma, Jordan, Iraq, Syria through the, we're connected with a larger body of churches, both within Calvary Chapel and with the Southern Baptist Convention. And within the Southern Baptist Convention, you, because you're a part of this church, you're connected with the North American Mission Board, which is reaching people and planting churches in the United States and Canada. But you're also connected with the International Mission Board, which has more than 4,000 missionaries all throughout the world, that you are a part of that. Even more than that, not only are you connected to these missionaries who are taking the good news to other parts of the world because of the way that you support this church and you support me as a pastor and the other pastors here at this church, we are your ambassadors working in this work. And, and one of the I just want to share with you one of the organizations that you are a part of, if you're a part of Cross Connection Church, is, well, two organizations, two that I have the privilege of serving as a board member. One of them is a ministry called Enduring Word. And if you just go to EnduringWord.com, you can find this website. Maybe you've gone there before. It is the Bible commentaries of my very good friend, Pastor David Guzik, who has spoken here at this church before. But just to, to show you some of the ways that you are having an impact in the world at this very moment, Last year, in 2021, EnduringWord.com, which I had the privilege of originally building that website, that website had 77 million page views. 77 million page views. That is more than 211,000 page views a day. That's about 150 people every single minute who are looking on a phone or on a tablet or on their computer. They're looking at the commentaries there. People find this website by searching things on Google or on DuckDuckGo and they search for a question about God or they search for a question about the Bible and they end up on EnduringWord.com. 77 million people or 77 million pages last year were viewed by people on that website. And so far, we as Enduring Word and the work that you're a part of, if you're a part of Cross Connection Church, we have translated that commentary, especially the New Testament of that commentary into Spanish and Mandarin and Arabic and German. And it is partially translated. Let me share this with you. It's amazing. It is partially translated into Portuguese, Russian, Hindi, Farsi, French, Italian, and Urdu. And over the next five years, we're going to add to that. We're translating that into Japanese, Kurdish, Bengali, and Korean. And so this word is going out all over the world. We have people who are checking that information out about the Bible and learning about God through Enduring Word because of what you are a part of here at this church. But not only do I have the privilege of serving with Enduring Word, which the reach of Enduring Word is amazing, I also, I also work with a ministry called Blue Letter Bible, which is another online resource. If, you go, resource. if you go to blueletterbible.com, you can study the Bible in the original languages or do cross-references or do all kinds of different studies there. And, and here's the amazing thing. Last year, Blue Letter Bible distributed content at a rate of more than 2 million page views a day. 2 million page views a day. They had 750 million, 750 million page views last year. Absolutely phenomenal what God is doing. So that's part of what you are a part of as you are a part of this church and praying for this church and supporting this church financially as you give to it. We have missionaries in China and the Philippines and Africa and Nepal and Israel, all over the world. But the question still remains, what part do you play in the mission of God? Because we are living life in connection with God and one another. That's wonderful. That's something that we will enjoy for all of eternity because of the work that Jesus did. But we need to connect others in this world with Christ Christ. And so you're doing that by praying for and supporting this ministry. But I want to ask you to become a part of this work by serving God as an ambassador. Who do you connect with on a regular basis that needs to be connected to God? We did a little bit of research. and I've shared this with the church before about our area several years ago. Within 10 miles of this building where I'm sitting at recording this right now, within 10 miles of this building, there are nearly a million people who live within 10 miles of this building. And less than 10% of them are reached by a Bible-teaching, gospel-focused church like Cross Connection Church. That means there are more than 850,000 people who live within 10 miles of this building who are disconnected from God. And you connect with those people on a regular basis. Those are the people that you see at work or school or at the gym or out on the soccer field or at the store or get in the mail at the mailbox. These are the people that you connect with on a regular basis. So who do you connect with on a daily, weekly basis that needs to be connected to God. And how do you reach them? First, first thing you can do is pray. Pray for them. Commit to pray for them daily. Write down their names. Pray for them daily. Put their name down on a prayer card here at the church, and we will pray with you for them. Second thing you can do after you pray for them is to be kind to them. Let them see in you the fruit of the Spirit as you are bearing the fruit of the spirit of joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, and so on, allow them to see your peace and joy and kindness and patience and self-control and love, and then invite them to church or share the gospel with them. Ask them if you can pray for them. These are all some very simple ways that you can begin to engage in the work that God has called you to. But really at the end of the day, it's, it's this very simple thing that God has called you to and it's found in one of Peter's le- letters. First Peter, I think it is let's see if I'm correct. First Peter chapter two, verse nine. Peter says this. And, and just imagine he's writing this letter to you. "You are chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special or peculiar people, people. For what? For what purpose? Why are you a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people? That you would proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's your task. That's the simple task that God has for you. Simply proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Tell people about Jesus who saved you from sin and death and suffering and darkness, who found you when you were lost. You who were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You who had not obtained mercy, but now you have obtained mercy. You have obtained mercy from Jesus Christ. You have been brought into co- connection with God and one another because of what Jesus did on the cross for you. And now all you need to do is to share that with somebody else. Because I guarantee you know a lot of people who need to know that good news. Father God, I pray that you would give us a passion to share this good news with other people. There are so many people that we interact with daily who are far from you and they're feeling the effects of sin and suffering and death in their lives. And they're fearful of death because of the unknown nature of what comes after death and really the judgment that comes after death. But God, you have given us the words of life. You have given us the ministry of reconciliation. And I pray God that we would take that good news and we'd share it today. There's someone today that you want us to talk to. Maybe someone that we need to send a text message to or an email to or call them and share with them the good news of who you are. Would you enable and empower your people just as you said you would. You said you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. So God, would you empower me and my brothers and sisters empower us to share this good news with others because this is the message that people need. Not a political message, not an economic message, not a medical message or a technological message, none of that. This is the life-giving gospel that started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and is still being played out today. As we look forward to one day, you will bring about the restoration. We look forward to that, but until then, God help us to share this good news with others. We ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen.